0: Hi, I'm Derek Pitts, and welcome to the Curious Cosmos. Today, I'm really excited about our guest. He graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in Math and Physics from Tougaloo University in 1991. His Master's and PhD in Physics are from Stanford University. He's the current president of the National Society of Black Physicists, and he's also an inventor with a number of industrial patents for computer processor chips. And you may recognize him from his many media appearances as a science content expert for Discovery Channel, The Science Channel, Good Morning America, National Geographic, and plenty more. But on top of all that, he's also an incredible person with an even more incredible life story, which he told in his memoir, A Quantum Life, My Unlikely Journey from the Street to the Stars, published in 2021. A young adult adaptation of the book was released this past year. Dr. Hakim Oyushehi, it's really a great pleasure to have you with us today to talk about some interesting topics. Looking forward in physics and astrophysics, and also uh, maybe to take a look back at how you came to science. So, uh, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me. And just so you know, I knew of you long before you knew of me. So <laughs> <laughs> you are, and I hope that yeah, I was thing. looking up to you. Oh, yeah, absolutely, man. I loved you. I fell in love with you immediately. So wow. I'm, I'm honored to be here.
0: I really do appreciate that. Thank you. That means a lot. And I, you. So uh, we could be each other's heroes now, right?
1: That's right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we got a bromance going. We got it. You got it. That is absolutely <laughs> yeah. for sure. Let's get
0: started with this, Hakeem. I really want to get your perspective on some science stuff first. And so I want to start in a region that we rarely hear people talking about in physics and astrophysics. And it's about some of the advances that have taken place in the last two decades and what's going on in the future in that regard. You know, we hear a lot in particle physics about new particles that are being identified and new understandings about how certain particles work. I'm thinking in particular right now of the God particle and how we sort of use the God particle as a way to get a better understanding of things like gravity and so on and so forth like that. But my question around these advances of the last two decades is, what do you think is coming next? What do you think should be on the agenda for you know the next problems we ought to be looking at in physics?
1: wow thank you for the softball question
0: (laughs) i didn't i didn't want to waste your time here you know
1: (laughs) yeah well you know it really depends on what area you're looking in right so there are areas that are brand spanking new like gravitational wave astronomy so just
0: like astronomers might study radio waves or study infrared radiation to learn something different about astronomical objects astronomers have discovered that gravitational waves can also tell a piece of the story about the evolution of the universe.
1: What the Event Horizon Telescope is doing, yes, right? Yes, sure. Imaging black holes at the centers of galaxies. Mm-hmm. So those two are huge, right? Because as I see it, we've come so far in understanding matter, understanding the electromagnetic radiation, but... As far as understanding space-time, you know, we've gotten as far as GR, (laughs) general relativity. Yeah, yeah. And we're kind of stuck in a way. We went down a string theory path, there's loop quantum gravity, right? Black hole thermodynamics, but it feels like we've been stuck because there's not any experimental evidence, right? Observations, measurements that can lead the way. I think in the early 20th century we got spoiled or even late 20th century go to maxwell with you know how the theorists were just pushing it forward before we had observations right and they can make predictions that we can go and look for and say hey we know what we're talking about
0: theoretical physics really is nothing more than a set of ideas about how something works all the while fitting in with the laws of physics as we already understand them it's almost like saying okay we know this works like this I have an idea of how it might work going forward. So let me continue to develop and work on this idea and see how far out it goes and what it's going to suggest. So you have this theoretical idea. Now what you do is you then go see if you can come up with some observations that confirm what your idea is about how this is going to play out. So this is why astronomers these days keep referring back to Einstein because Einstein, as a theoretical physicist, worked out what could possibly happen going forward if you simply extended work on this phenomenon according to the laws and principles as we see them. And what he discovered was, oh, well, my idea now suggests that the universe should be doing this. He didn't have the means to prove it, but he said, my numbers are right. I've had my friends check it. The numbers are right. So that's suggesting the universe is going to do this. Now we have the equipment to see whether or not what he was suggesting actually would turn up. And gravitational waves is one of those.
1: We're at a time now where, you know, we understand that within these theories is not the full story of the universe. And that's what we're trying to get to. I think the theoretical speculative pathways have sort of, you know, they've all kind of run dry in terms of looking really like this is it. So experiment is the way forward, I think. So that's that side. Everything happening in planetary astronomy is new, right? That's all new. And solar system exploration, right? We're going to these wet worlds now, right? We have a dragonfly mission going to Titan. We have the Europa Clipper mission.
0: And when you say wet worlds, you're talking about going to places where we know there's liquid water. Or
1: liquid something else, right? So Titan has...
0: Right, that's liquid methane, right, okay. But
1: abundant liquids, because liquids are a necessity for life, it appears to be. And so, you know, here on Earth is based on water, but the astrobiologists who study this stuff say that there's a huge plethora of different liquids that could serve as a solvent for life. And so let's go look, see what's there. Mm -hmm. That stuff is pretty cool. There's other areas that are more obscure, like optics, you know, semiconductor physics.
0: Sure. This is like, and you're talking about applied physics here, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Applied physics is always doing
0: cool stuff. When we're talking about applied physics, what we're really saying is that we're taking these ideas that we've extrapolated out from someplace else and we're turning it into practical applications. So we're using this physics now to make stuff that does cool things for us. So a really good example of this is lasers. Lasers started out as this really wild idea that if you manipulated light in just the right way, you could make it way more powerful and have it do things that you couldn't imagine doing before. And now what we've done is, we've applied those ideas about lasers in so many different ways. In fact, we no longer think about what lasers do for us. They're almost ubiquitous, but that's an example of applied physics.
1: The people that do what we call solid-state physics, man, matter just, you know, you put it in a new extreme situation. Let's make it really cold. Let's make it two-dimensional. Let's make it one-dimensional. Let's make it, you know, and you get whole new behaviors that you can now leverage to create new technologies. Quantum computing is one of them
0: keeps going. Right. So you think that on the observational side, on the data collection side and exploring the the universe and trying to push for those outer boundaries of understanding more about what happened really early on, a telescope like James Webb is right out there on the cutting edge, you know, like knocking on the door of the very earliest periods in our history. Is there some other regime that we could be looking in other than IR that might open some doors for us out there?
1: Ooh, Well, the the gravitational wave lens is the main one. The cosmic microwave background radiation has paid off so hugely for precision cosmology. And that next step is the cosmic neutrino background.
0: So the microwave background radiation, this is really just a fancy term for the residual heat left over from the beginning of the universe. Everybody knows about the Big Bang big explosion, stars, galaxies are formed, all this stuff comes into existence and we have a universe, right? Well, it's not exactly like that. It's a little trickier than that. So the universe starts out an incredibly small, incredibly hot, incredibly dense dot, just infinitesimally small. But everything that we know of in the universe today, including all of the forces like gravity and electromagnetism and all that stuff, that's all packed in there for some reason that little dot explodes. And as it explodes, the temperature begins to go down. As the temperature begins to go down, elementary particles can be formed. Those elementary particles can get together and create atoms. Those atoms can then create molecules. Now you have the building blocks for all of the other stuff in the universe, like stars and galaxies and all that jazz, right? But What people don't realize is that shortly after that explosion began, the universe sat essentially dormant for a little bit of time. And then there was a sudden expansion of all of this. And the universe cooled down even further and particles began to get together in a way that allowed radiant energy to pass through and start traveling around the now expanding universe once this inflation began, now electrons could begin to couple with protons and neutrons, and that then made the universe transparent to the radiation, and radiation could now be able to spread throughout the universe. And in figuring out what it might have been like before then, we now develop a model for what the universe must have been like in those very early few seconds, or even the first
1: billionth of a second. And that is a huge technological challenge. you know. So neutrinos promise a lot of insight into this subatomic world of fields and particles. So there are experiments that are going on looking at different aspects of neutrinos, like there's the one where they're shooting it to the mine from some place in Chicago.
0: Neutrinos are really simple too. So if we just think about the basic atomic particles like protons, neutrons, and electrons, well, neutrinos are actually part of that But they're far, far smaller. Not only are they really tiny, but they really have virtually no mass at all. And they pass through everything. Everything. They are so small, they fit through the tiniest little atomic spaces between any of the other particles at all. If you hold up your hand, there are hundreds of millions of neutrinos passing through your hand right now passing through your entire body. Everywhere these neutrinos exist, but because they are so small and because they have no mass, they hardly interact with anything at all. So, one of the great neutrino experiments that has been created is what he refers to. There's a huge abandoned mine underground, near Chicago, that is filled essentially with the fluids that are used by dry cleaners to clean clothes. Well, there's an element in that dry cleaning fluid that has a component that will react with neutrinos. This abandoned mine has the ability to filter out all other particles except neutrinos. So now what you do is you just set up detectors to detect the outcome of a neutrino interaction. And this interaction results in a little tiny flash of light. There are photomultipliers, photoreceptor tubes, lining this mine that's then filled with the dry cleaning fluid, and they turn these things on and let them sit. And they actually have seen flashes that are the indications that a neutrino has come through and reacted with the material in the dry cleaning chemical.
1: But you also have, just like there's a cosmic microwave background radiation, before photons decoupled from the matter at 380,000 years after the Big Bang, there was an earlier period where neutrinos decoupled. There's another one. There's another signal in the cosmic microwave background radiation that's very difficult to detect. We thought it was detected in the very early 2000s. Turned out they had detected dust in our own galaxy. So you have to characterize these so-called foregrounds and backgrounds. But these are a particular type of gravitational wave known as primordial gravitational waves, and they actually originate from the very founding moment of our universe, what we call inflation. And they would leave an imprint in what is known as the B-modes, is complex. Let's mm-hmm, just put it that it way. Is. But there's pretty much three different types of spectra that you can get out of the cosmic microwave background radiation. One is related to temperature variations in the early universe, and two are related to the polarization of the light. So the temperature one is called the TT spectrum. The polarization one, one is called EE for electric fields, and the other is called BB for magnetic fields. So in the very early universe, the event that would have triggered the expansion of our universe and the addition of energy into our universe, it would have left an imprint in gravitational waves that would have then imprinted on the cosmic microwave background radiation. And if we are able to detect them, that would be like having the early universe on a Petri dish in our lab and able to like make direct measurements of the conditions at that time.
0: My head is just exploding here. I remember reading about the detection of the BB waves. But
1: the error bars are as big as the (laughs) <laughs> you know, the Empire State <laughs> Building, right? That's the problem.
0: Okay, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that area because the error bars are so big, it's really hard to define anything that's happening just exactly. yet with that. Okay, so that's really interesting because I, uh, the way you say it is a really good way to say it. If we can figure out how to make use of this, then we can have the universe in a petri dish and we can really study these interesting effects.
1: Yeah, you get out the actual like physical measurements of like, you know, the temperature, the density, which typically leads to everything else. And <laughs> you got a collection of stuff. And, you know, that's just mind blowing to me. So basically, here's the thing. So what this physicists have figured out is as the universe evolved through various stages, so the universe starts off small, hot, dense, and over time it expands, it becomes cooler and less dense. And what happens is along that pathway, We can use the laws of physics to say, do the conditions at that time create a signal that we can measure today to, you know, either confirm or disconfirm this theory, right? And so, you know, there's so many that stretch back there. The cosmic neutrino background is one that we not yet looked at this primordial gravitational, B-mode gravitational waves, that's another one. And so people in the same way predicted, you know, Gamow, Alfred, and Herman in the 40s predicted that the cosmic microwave background would be there. And so over the 20th century and into the 21st century, we sucked all this information out of it. Yes, right. Yeah, that's what we've been doing. Yeah, so now there's two more of those at least. That's really cool.
0: We all know that uh, Elon Musk wants humanity to become a spacefaring species starting with colonizing Mars. What is your thinking on the viability of long duration space travel for humans? It's it's a big romantic idea that we all have about, let's get out there and discover the universe and we'll pile into a spaceship and we'll fly out there and in 48 minutes, like they always do on the Star Trek episodes, we'll flash from one part of the galaxy to another part of the galaxy. You never see any change in an inertial (laughs) movement inside the spacecraft or anything like that when they're zipping along at light speeds and things like that. They're accelerating, yeah. Yeah, right, right. There's no evidence of that at all. Warp nine, and we're
1: still looking the same. So,
0: (laughs) yeah. What's your take on this stuff here for a long duration human space travel?
1: Well, the first thing is just from an engineering and biological perspective and mental perspective, it's very, 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 very difficult, if not impossible. But anytime someone says something is impossible, You've taken a pretty hard stand there, so I'm not going to be that guy. Okay, all right. But it's really, really hard. And so, you know, the question is, what do we want to do and why do we want to do it? All right, so the two things that I've heard is, well, three, they're sort of like the Star Trek model. I don't really see that happening. Not with humans and spacecraft. The other is turn our solar system into our playground, turn near space, space around the sun, into our tourism. That could happen to some degree. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. Along with that is mining the asteroids and this sort of thing.
0: So the Earth only has a limited supply of minerals. Well, it turns out that asteroids are an excellent source for certain kinds of minerals particularly really rare or what we now refer to as strategic minerals. So, for example, think about something like lithium. Lithium is an element that makes really good batteries. But if we're going to make enough cars with lithium batteries for people all over the world, then we have to exhaust, probably, the supply of lithium that our
1: planet has. That definitely can happen. You know, you could use robots to do that, but we're talking about humans in space. And then the other one, the third model is, we think of the planet's going to end and we need to be somewhere else, right, to survive that. And so, for sure, the planet is going to end, right? In a billion years, the Earth is going to be uninhabitable by any sort of life that we're aware of, right? Because the oceans are going to boil away and you know, it just has to do with the evolution of the sun.
0: right? Just to put people at ease, it's not going to happen for a little while.
1: Billion years, a billion years, right? No species that we know of has existed for a billion years. Multicellular life has not existed for a billion years. So we're talking about something that you don't have to worry about. But the question is, even if you're not doing that, do you want to plant your seeds on other worlds and have them grow your DNA there, right? There's some sort of like primal urge to, you know, like the selfish gene, right? Spread this gene all throughout the cosmos. So you can do that without sending humans into space, right? You can send embryos, because the problem is you're not gonna find another planet that is Earth. Every planet is gonna be unique for the most part, right? But there are so many planets that have been identified as Earth-like. Right, yeah, that means they're about the same size. Venus is pretty darn Earth-like. But it ain't Earth-like. But it ain't Earth-like. That is for sure. (laughs) You bet. Right. Yeah. So it doesn't mean you can survive there just because it's a similar size and maybe even similar temperature. You know, there's going to be a huge variation in the, the layer of gases that surround that rock, whatever it is, you know. Earth is really special. For example, it's not appreciated that most of life on Earth has four protective layers that protect it from space, which would otherwise kill it. The first is the magnetic bubble of the sun, what we call the heliosphere. The next is the magnetic bubble of the Earth, which we call the magnetosphere. Mm -hmm. Then you have this thin layer of gases that we call the atmosphere. And then, you know, I said most life, you're going to be under either water or Earth. The fact that we have life on the surface is because one type of radiation is let through, and that is visible light. And so after existing on Earth for four billion years, roughly, life was able to figure out how to use that light to break apart water molecules and get oxygen, which led to an oxygenated environment, which led to multicellular life. But here's the thing, where life is gonna come into existence, number one, is gonna be where there are fluids, as we mentioned earlier. But the thing is, where do we find fluids? In most cases, it's under miles of rock, miles of ice, or miles of atmosphere. Earth has a transparent atmosphere only because it has a strong magnetic field and it only has a strong magnetic field because of two coincidences that neither Venus nor Mars have. It's large enough to still have a partially molten core, right? Venus is roughly the same size as Earth, but the difference is Earth rotates fast to create a strong current that could generate that electric field. Venus rotates slowly, so it has no magnetic field. Mars is half the size of Earth, so it does not have the liquid core. It's cooled off, and so even though it spins at the same rate, 24-hour-a-day roughly, right? So we're so lucky to have this magnetic bubble and a super-thin atmosphere that allows light to the surface. And then if you look at what planets we find, most of the terrestrial planets we find are what we call super-Earths. A super-Earth is going to have a lot stronger gravity, not just because it's more mass, but as you add more mass, it packs down more tightly. So you're even closer to the core than you otherwise would be if you kept the density constant. So gravity has increased doubly. So you're gonna have a bunch of dwarf incredible hulks that look like centipedes (laughs) or millipedes, right? That's gonna be the life. (laughs) You know, you gotta be low to the ground and really strong. You're gonna weigh many times what you'd weigh on earth. So now put a human on that environment. You're just gonna lie down and not be able to get up, right? (laughs) And you know, a small world, Titan is a small world, right? The moon of Saturn, Titan. But if you lived on Titan, you wouldn't even know that stars exist. The atmosphere is so damn thick that light does not get through for the most part like it does here on Earth. It's a varied environment out there. I was going to say
0: this really points to the importance of Earth as being, you know, a unique kind of place for life to have developed.
1: But here's the thing. What if you send embryos to a place like Titan and then have robots genetically modify it so that they can survive? on that world Uh is that still a human or do you want to do some precursor life form right you send a spaceship ahead that grows like barbecue ribs peanut butter (laughs) vanilla malt (laughs) you know potato (laughs) pie and then you send the embryos that later come and eat the delicious ribs (laughs) because you can't just send yourself right you need an, an ecosystem to support life you need a biosphere to support the life, unless you're very simple life. So that adds to the challenge oh, yeah, of
0: putting humans out there to do that kind of long duration exploration.
1: Yeah, so it's hard, it's, it's hard. very, yeah. very difficult mm-hmm. to do.
0: And there are tons of examples where, you know, someone has stepped forward and said, it's impossible for that to happen. Right. And then 10 right, years right. later, there you go. There it is. I think that's an important sort of guardrails for people to think about when we talk about what kind of exploration humans are going to be doing in space.
1: The other thing to understand, though, too, is that the reason why we knew Oumuamua was from outside of our solar system. Oumuamua
0: was a gigantic cigar-shaped asteroid that passed through our section of the solar system a few years ago. It turned out that Oumuamua is a visitor from another part of the galaxy altogether, not an original part of our solar system at all. Speculation has run rampant about the possibility of what Aumuamua actually is. We don't really know because we can't really tell very much about it other than it's big, it's dense, it's been traveling for a long time, and it's traveling at a very high rate of speed that would be generated by its movement through the
1: galaxy is because the way the laws of physics work, you're coming from far away. There's a lot of gravitational potential energy. So by the time you arrive, you're moving really fast, faster than if you originated within our solar system. So if you think you're going to leave here and travel to some other star system, how do you slow down and go in orbit around the planet? We couldn't even slow down and go into orbit around Pluto,
0: yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know? yeah that's you <laughs> you know? that's right. Well, these are important things because, you know, the difference between fantasy and reality can be really enormous, and it can be terribly misleading. And that sort of leads me into the next segment in our discussion, and that is, my first visit to Jet Propulsion Laboratories in uh, Southern California a number of years ago, I was surprised at the lack of people of color that I saw Mm -hmm. working in engineering positions and things like that. That's changed dramatically. In the last, you know, 20 years or so, my most recent visit, uh, I was really surprised at uh, how many more women I saw and how many more people of color. And in recognition that diversity and inclusion is really important, NASA has put itself in a position of saying that diversity and inclusion is tremendously important to them because the problems they have, they need to get those solved. And they're going to turn over every rock they can to find people who can help them so do you feel as if there's been progress in diversity and inclusion in physics? And and how important is this in physics? Is it the same way in physics as it is for NASA's applied needs?
1: You know, my thinking is, is a bit divergent here. One of the things that has impacted my thinking is the fact that I've now visited 42 countries around the world. You know, like it's sort of like us studying planets, right? We now understand, that, oh, our solar system is kind of unique, right? It's not the standard solar system. I think that having a perspective of many different societies and understanding what is societal in general and what is unique to where i'm from and also see the positives and negatives of my society so the first thing i'll say is that whatever problems we have with isms within science is really reflective of society as a whole but at the same time physics and astronomy are like a filter For example, sometimes I'm in a discussion about equity and inclusion and fairness and all this. And someone, you know, from the community will say, and I've seen people talk about this, you know, a black person, right, will say, oh, you know, our kids aren't interested in that stuff. And the black scientists will be aghast, like, wait, no, that's not the story. This is a part of their history. And I'm like, no, that ain't the story either. The story (laughs) is, you know who else ain't interested in this stuff? White people, Asian people, Indian people, like nobody's interested in physics and astronomy. Let's, Let's be real about this. (laughs) When you look at STEM in general, we've been pushing the STEM for the last 25 years hard. And there have been changes, but still, what percentage of college students graduate with STEM degrees? It's only 18%. What percentage of those are going to be in physics and astronomy? It's a very, very tiny number. Now, a part of that filter is a personality filter. It's an identity filter. Sure. When I was a kid, they were calling me Urkel. Whenever a kid came on the TV who was a prototypical nerd. Now, mind you, I'm from the hood, several hoods. So Urkel in my hood, like my brother-in-law told me in grad school, he's like, man, you don't fit in anywhere. You know, at home, I'm Urkel. (laughs) At Stanford, I'm Snoop Dogg. You know what I mean? It's like, you know. Right? (laughs) So... When you get to this community, the other thing is, are you prepared for that work? And the big filter of preparation, if you ask me, is mathematics. Yeah. And I feel like the evidence tells me this. There's only two ways in America and most of the world that a person becomes well-educated in mathematics by the time they're 18 years old. One, there's a person well-educated in mathematics in your home to start with. Number two, you got lucky. Ah. (laughs) If you go to school and learn math, oh, are you lucky? You know, the basic thoughts of STEM math is algebra, right? That's the basic language. And the basics of algebra is missing virtually the entire society, right? And so you could be interested and you could be motivated. You could be loving it. You could be a hardworking person. But then you get into that classroom in your university and it gets real, mm-hmm. right? And to, and to make matters worse, they give you fake physics in high school, fake physics in your freshman and sophomore year. So by the time you hit <laughs> real physics in your junior year, you're just like, what the hell is this? You know, I'm out of here, right? The filter barrier of, I don't see myself as Urkel versus running fast as you can to be Urkel. And then I'm not even prepared to do this because of my, you know, I didn't grow up with it in my house. Right. <laughs> right. You know, it's just like the NBA. How many, it's like a dozen cats right now who fathers play in the NBA. I'm, I'm giving a rough number. I go to my research group, 50% of the guys in my research group, their fathers were PhD physicists.
0: Yeah.
1: It's the way the world works, right? The parents recreate you. So now you're going to say, okay, let me take a people who over a hundred years from the birth of the grandparent to the death of the grandchild. hmm Right. So my father was born in 1933. My father dropped out of school when he was nine years old. His father, I'm guessing early, I don't know exactly when he was born, but early 20th century. Then we go into a dude in the 19th century, right? So how I ended up educated is by pure luck, pure luck and pure will to say, this is what I'm going after. I'm really into it and I'm not stopping no matter what, no matter how hard it is, right? Taking a lot of slaps in the face all the way. It's a hard thing to do. One of the biggest problems with that education side is that we go to the kids and not anybody else in the community. You can't educate the kids without educating the adults. An example is my son, who's now 17, when he was like four or five, my mother says to me, I think he's smarter than you. And I'm like, no, the hell he ain't. His daddy got a PhD <laughs> in physics. My daddy and my mother both dropped out of school, yeah. right? You know. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. But don't get me wrong. I wasn't an idiot just because I was undereducated. My parents weren't idiots because they're undereducated. They just knew different things. Right. When I got to Stanford, there was hell of people better than me at mathematics. But I doubt there were many who were better than me at cleaning the squirrel. <laughs> you know, I, I could slaughter a squirrel, a pig, a, <laughs> a, a, a possum, a raccoon, an armadillo, you
0: right. know? Right, the aptitude is just someplace else.
1: It's someplace else, yeah. yeah.
0: I talk about that same thing all the time, Hakim. I say it's a question of where your aptitude is, you know, yeah, not a question yeah, of a raw number of how smart you are, but it's where right. your aptitude is. And where you've been trained. Yeah, sure, and I can see your argument about what those gates are to physics. And you're right, those gates are the same. That mathematics gate is the same for everyone. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It's the same right. thing.
1: Can you do the math or not? But they don't really measure can you do the math. What they measure is, can you persevere to learn the math if you have it and or have you been trained up to this day to just know it, right? And so most of us coming in not trained up to this day. Those are the lucky few who have it in their house, in their community. They got lucky. But then that whole perseverance thing, all the studies show what determines whether or not you succeed, grit, (laughs) right? Because you're not prepared for it. That's why it requires grit. And the filter of personalities is that you get nerds. <laughs> What's his name from the Big Bang? Uh, Sheldon, Sheldon Cooper, Co- yeah. Sheldon Cooper, right? You get Sheldon Cooper. You're not going to physics school and hanging out with Snoop Dogg, unless you met me, right? Then you're like, oh, I got I, I met and my Snoop Dogg. And that's an unusual Dogg. combination
0: <laughs> of skills and talents, right? So that actually brings me now to the next question I have for you, which is your personal story to me is one that every middle school, high school student in any underserved community, in almost any community, anyway, should hear once a year, mm. and it's because you made a conscious decision at a point to do something different. Your book, that came out in twenty one, uh, you talk about how you originally lived the life of the street. Oh yeah, and that's part and parcel of who you are. So, can you talk a little bit about what that was like? But really importantly in this is, how did you make that transition to science?
1: Yeah, so. The science was always there. So what happened with me is being left alone a lot allows you to be alone with yourself in your mind. And so I started devouring books, but the books I started devouring, I remember the very first book that just captured my imagination was Edith Hamilton's Mythology.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. I just love fantastical Stories. Sure. Right? You yeah. know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and so, you know, I had a mother who made sure I was in church every Sunday, right?
0: I know that trip.
1: Uh, you know, the Bible stories, right? They're also fantastical. But of course, the Bible was not written in everyday English. So <laughs> it took me <laughs> a, a while to get to reading that. But then I next discovered comics from my cousins, Marvel Comics, DC comics. Thought it was amazing. And then when I was nine years old, in the country, nothing to do in the wintertime, I read my first novel, my first adult book. And that was Roots by Alex Haley. And that really just, you know, the fact of how reading sucked me into the story in a way that watching and and picture books didn't just really blew my mind. And it was like, oh, my God, this is a treasure trove. Where are these book things? (laughs) You know, let me get more of them. I didn't have access to more, but my mother had purchased a set of encyclopedias. And so I decided when I was 10 the next year, oh, I'm gonna read them from A to Z. Let me start at A, right? I get to E and I discover Albert Einstein. And man, it was like fantastical, but true. It does not the comics. This is not mythology. This is true. My mom would work shift work, right? 3 to 11, 11 to seven, she do double shifts. So, you know, it was times where I didn't see her for a week or whatever. You know, I come home and she's got two or three books from the library on Einstein, left them on the kitchen table for me. And I decided to teach myself relativity. Uh, (laughs) But at the same time, you know, I was going through these hoods. Like I moved every year for a decade and sometimes multiple times per year. And it was either, you know, South Central LA or Houston, Third Ward, Houston, South Park area, New Orleans, Ninth Ward, New Orleans East, right? And then there's rural Mississippi. It was tough. You know, it was the the seventies and the eighties. Gang life was a thing and I was not trying to be in a gang. The story I hear on the media is always like, oh, they joined a gang for protection. I looked at it the exact opposite. I was like, these are very fools I'm trying to avoid. Exactly. Why am I gonna join them? I'm better off by myself and my wits. You know, it felt like every day was like running a gauntlet, man. I mean... I know that.
0: I know that experience.
1: And it was many types of bad actors, right? And some of them were adults, right? And you're a kid out there. So, man, my mom, seeing the writing on the wall, because my older first cousins, you know, these dudes were Crips from the early 70s. And, wow. you know, by the late 70s and 80s, they're robbing banks. And two of the three go to prison.
0: That's really close to you.
1: Oh, man, my whole family, my father, when I moved to the South, you know, I started dealing with my dad at nine years old. By the time I go to college at Tougaloo, my dad's my plug, right? I'm driving out to New Orleans, picking up packages, coming back to Jackson, Mississippi. And ultimately, by the time I'm 21, I'm addicted. My roommate, who was my business partner, is addicted. My father's addicted. My brother's addicted. And man, the life of the street got really dark and really dangerous. And I find myself literally at gunpoint on a number of occasions. And the scariest thing to me, which made me pull out of it the first time, was when I found myself about to pull a gun and kill a guy, shoot a guy. Whoa. And my my roommate, who was really, you know, he was like, dude, this is not you. What is going on? Yeah. And so I pulled back and I was able to stay clean for like a year. And then I went back in, right? Right at the end of the summer before my last year at Tougaloo. And my first day of my last year at undergraduate, I'm in a drug bust that morning and that night I find myself literally at gunpoint kidnapped. Wow! <laughs> like what? like a horrific. Yeah, I didn't put this in a book. The the publisher was like it's too much. You know, That's you can't Crazy. It's totally crazy, man. But when you're out there in the streets from midnight to 6 a.m., all bets are off. Forget about civilization. <laughs> you know, it's a it's a whole other world. It's rough. So,
0: what was it that triggered you out of that?
1: Man, you just get tired of it, man. You just get tired of it. It happened when I was at Stanford. I found myself at gunpoint yet again. And I'm just like, man, I I just can't take this another day. You know, and there was something in me that kind of made me want to destroy myself as well. You know, my childhood trauma. It was such a, like, double-spirited person. Like, you have the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. You know, on the one hand, I believed in myself. I believed I could do everything. But on the other hand, I felt like, oh, you know, you're a piece of trash. Destroy yourself, right? Because that's how I was treated. I always say, you know, as a dude, it takes you, like, 26 to get some sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? <And> that's what kind <laughs> right. of happened. I was around the age. Then I had an example. I had a mentor, right? Art Walker was an example for me.
0: Oh, he was awesome. Art Walker was an astronomy professor, a physics professor at Stanford University. And he was one of the first Black astrophysicists on the faculty. And Art Walker was an incredible individual because He really worked hard to act as a mentor to physics students of color. He really made sure that he shepherded along as many physics students from underrepresented populations as he possibly could. In fact, one of his first graduate students was Sally Ride. Not only was his work groundbreaking in X-ray astronomy, but he really was that mentor for African-Americans in astronomy well before there were many physicists of color in faculty
1: positions. He was also, but at the same time, and you gotta look at the filters that exist. You know, there's a trauma in the community that I'm from, African-American community. And so if you look at the idea of a black man who behaves like a white man, as we would look at it back then, right? We had to word for that whitewash. So when I first met Art, I was attracted to him, but at the same time, he wasn't my kind of black guy, if you know what I mean, right? Yeah, of course. But now, you know, I was ignorant. And that's what you learn, right? You learn that there is no group of people for whom they, all good is in them or all bad is in them. It's an individual culture. And so take any group of people, whatever, however you want to classify them, Businesses, <laughs> right. a race, a religion, an ethnicity, and you plot them on some goodness against some goodness, it's gonna be a bell curve every time. It's an individual by individual thing. You learn, you, you mature. Education, travel, interacting with people of all ilks. You get a lot of that BS out of your mind.
0: Now, the very last thing for you, why are you so dedicated to this? You do a lot of media stuff, Hakim. You're on a lot of programming here. You serve on a lot of different panels, both nationally recognized and small scale. You're the president of NSBP and all of these other things that convey a sense that you have some responsibility for helping people understand the world of science. Why is that important to you? Why are you so dedicated
1: to that? I have no idea, man. I've always been down with that for some reason. And I feel like it's almost a responsibility and a duty. You know, I really think about the people from similar backgrounds to me, the people that are in the out. You know, I've always had the personality of pulling for the underdog. And then the other part of it is, you know, sort of ingrained in me and my community of be useful. You know, be useful to your community, be useful to your society, you know. And this is kind of what I have to offer. Listen, I could be a supermodel.
0: You right? know what? I'm I'm not gonna go along with that, but I'll I'll let you say that. That's fine. <laughs> yeah.
1: You've not seen my app. <laughs> you gotta you gotta it believe is. in
0: yourself, brother. Go it ahead. <laughs> I got it. I got it.
1: Listen, I'm still convinced I'm gonna go to the NBA be the greatest player ever. <laughs> good, <laughs> good. That's great. I love yeah. that. I love that self-confidence.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well look you're killing it. You're absolutely killing it in that regard of serving that audience. And from an old head, you are doing exactly the kind of thing that we would want our younger brothers to do. And you are putting up that example that we think is really important. But you're also introducing people to science in a real, tangible manner that's not bullshit in any way, but honors what science really is and what it does. And you apply that across different disciplines in your life. And at the same time, you've been able to show people that you can make a decision about what you want to do and you can change and go in a direction you want to go whatever that is. Absolutely. And so I want to just applaud you for doing all that stuff. And uh, I want to thank you again for being willing to do this.
1: Anytime. Thank you so much.
0: I always love the opportunities I have to talk with Hakeem. I love how vibrant and alive he is when he's speaking about all of these things that he's interested in while he's telling stories or if he's talking about astrophysics or presenting just his perspective on so many interesting things. And indeed, he has a really unique perspective that I deeply appreciate. And I also really appreciate it that he's not afraid to present his perspective. And he seems to come from the school that every perspective is worth examining because you don't know what nuggets are there. And he does a really great job of allowing room for that and presenting his own perspective. And I think that's really great. And I think we need to see more examples of that, of having an open mind to listen to other people, to see what their point of view is, because you never know what we might learn from that. Every time I talk with Hakim, I always learn something new. So I really do appreciate that. And I always look forward to the next opportunity I have to listen to him. So if you have a chance to pick up Hakim's book, or catch him on one of the programs he so often appears on, I think you'll really enjoy learning more about him and learning to view the universe a little bit through his eyes as well. Thanks so much for listening to The Curious Cosmos today. We'll see you next time. This podcast is made in partnership with Radio Kismet, Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. This podcast is produced by Amy Carson, The Franklin Institute's Director of Digital Editorial is Joy Modofusco, and Aaron Armstrong runs marketing, communications, and digital media. Head of Operations is Christopher Plant. Our mix engineer is Justin Berger. And I'm Derek Pitts, Chief Astronomer and Director of the Fels Planetarium at the Franklin Institute, and your host for this podcast. Thanks so much for listening.